0: This is Deacon Allen. We come now to the fourth and final uh, summary of a series of uh, lectures I gave some years ago at the Cathedral of St. Paul regarding the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, we'll start off again with the quote that which we've used uh, for each of these talks um, in a letter that Tolkien had written uh, to his friend, uh, Father Robert Murray, Um He wrote, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. That is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world, for the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. Now, that's important because, again, we've noted, you know, if it's such a fundamentally religious and catholic work well where's the religion um but uh, but again it's baked into the 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 fundamental moral outlook of the story so far we've talked about um you know tolkien's own deep catholicism his love of language how he um developed the story mostly from creating fictional languages that he was developing and then wondering what kind of people would have spoken this language and what kind of stories would they have told. Um, and, uh, uh and then he developed this incredibly deep world, um, with so much, uh, 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 detail and depth to it. Um, and then we talked about, uh, the difference between allegory and applicability and how, uh, uh, tolkien you know did not care for allegory that is he saw that as the author forcing himself on the reader but applicability allowed the reader to draw connections with the real world uh in the writings and so uh we talked about uh christ figures uh in the lord of the rings and then also in our uh the the lecture the the talk that i i just gave um on marian images well this today i want to talk more about the kind of get more theoretical and talk about um the uh the moral uh background that is kind of worked into the story a deeply catholic uh moral theology that's at the at the heart of the characters and that's why they they resonate so well as such real characters um let's talk about a little background. One of the real difficulties uh, in um, in explaining uh, why we believe what we believe is the philosophical problem of evil. St. Thomas Aquinas talked about how there are really only two arguments against the existence of God. All of them basically boil down to two things. One, that you don't need God to explain things because they explain themselves. Well, that doesn't seem self-evident. And the second one is the problem of evil. If God is all good, all loving, all powerful, um, why does evil exist? Um, and uh, uh, St. Thomas answers, you know, the, that first one, that God is unnecessary because the universe is fully explicable without him, uh, with his the first of his five ways, the Vie. the the five proofs for the existence of God, you are looking at causation and saying, well, you have an infinite regress if you don't have a first cause, right? Um, But then uh, the second uh, is to be answered by some form, I think, of the greater good defense. Some of them have been developed, uh, you know, like the free will defense. Uh, Evil exists because freedom, free will is such an important good and you couldn't have freedom if you didn't have the freedom to go wrong uh you know freedom only to go right doesn't seem like like freedom at all um there are some difficulties with that argument because we know that if i can make if i'm faced with a moral choice and i can either do the right thing or not and i can freely choose one or the other it's possible I could freely choose the right every time, right? And that might land us in the Pelagian heresy. Um, but uh, but uh, I think a better way of understanding is something that is going to come up in our liturgy every year. Uh, in fact, I'm recording this on Holy Saturday, and tonight we're going to be singing the Exalted, the Great Easter Proclamation. And in there, there's four lines that are just beautiful. O certe necessarium ade peccatum quod Christi morte deletum est. O felix culpa quetalem actantum meruit habere redemptorem. O truly necessary sin of Adam which is cancelled by Christ's death. O happy fall, and felix culpa could be translated, O fortunate crime, that merited for us to have such and so great a redeemer. That is the idea, the felix culpa, the idea that even the worst thing we as a human race can do by turning our backs definitively on God and the sin of Adam, even the worst thing we can do, God can turn to account so that not only does he cancel it, not only does he wipe it away or forgive it, but he actually makes the evil we as a human race do a necessary condition for an even greater good, our redemption, that could not have happened without it. And so um, we see, uh, you know, the, the uh, I think that this, this uh, felix culpa um, defense as, you know, the greater good defense, that the evil is necessary condition for an even greater good that can happen. Well, when we look at freedom, and of course then from there we can get to the free will defense as part of that, right? Um, When we look at freedom of will in the Lord of the Rings, it's one of the things stressed over and over again. Um, We need to understand, though, first of all, what is evil in Catholic moral theology? Evil is not a positive thing. Evil is actually a privation of a good that ought to be there. In the same way that darkness is not, you know, a thing in itself, but it's the absence of light. Blindness is not a thing in itself, it's the absence of sight and so forth, right? So evil, um, something bad, is always a privation. It's always a good that's missing that should be there. Or a good thing that is perverted to a, a an end for which it's not intended, um, but evil ultimately is not something positive in itself. It's always actually makes us less than we're meant to be. It's a privation of a good that should have been there, uh, or it's a good that is disordered or corrupted. And as we see in the Lord of the Rings, Elrond says, even about the, the evil Sauron, the dark lord, you know, who forged the one ring of power and, you know, is the is the, the main bad guy of the Lord of the Rings, Elrond says, nothing is evil in the beginning, even Sauron was not so. Um, and so, when we look at the characters in the Lord of the Rings and the larger legendarium, we see also their choices, their deliberate choices are what make them, take them down a particular path. And often we can see characters that are paired uh, with one another, where the same moral choice is presented, and one takes the right choice, and one takes the wrong choice, and we see the consequences. So, Uh, And in doing that, I want to look at uh, uh, several pairs. Let's look at the pairs of Denethor and Theoden. Denethor is the great steward of Gondor, and and, uh, Theoden is the king of Rohan. And then we have the two brothers who are sons of Denethor, Boromir and Faramir. And we have the two wizards, uh, uh, who are actually, as we know, angelic beings who came over from, uh, the Valar to fight Sauron, great evil, um, Gandalf and Saruman. We have the two hobbits, uh, uh, Gollum and Frodo. Uh, we have two great elves, Galadriel and her cousin Feanor, and then two more hobbits, kind of working class hobbits, Sam Gamgee, uh, and Ted Sandyman. So let's take a look at these. Um, what do we see, uh, um, you know, we see free will in the Lord of the Rings is, is essential to understanding the ring as a metaphor for evil. Again, no allegory here. The ring is not itself, this is what evil means, but it's an allegory for evil. It, the ring's power is to be found in its power to dominate other wills, to enslave others. And part of the temptation of the ring is to make a person think he can actually wield it. Remember, sin is always a bait and switch. It's always a fraud and a cheat. You're offered something good because nobody can desire evil because evil isn't anything in itself. You you desire a good. But sin is a bait and switch. What you get is not the good that you de- that you desired. Um, You get slavery. You get a darkening of the intellect. You get a weakening of your will. And ultimately you get caught up in a habit, a cycle a spiraling downward that ultimately, if it is not broken by the grace of God, will end in hell for all eternity. Um, and so uh, uh, this ring of power it makes a person think that he can actually wield it uh, and dominate the wills of others. But in reality, ultimately, it enslaves even him. And so we see in the Lord of the Rings, Sauron is as much a slave of his own ring as his golem um so let's look at these pairs that i presented Denethor and Théoden two great well Denethor isn't a king but he's the steward and effectively a, the monarch of of uh of the country of Gondor and Théoden is the king of Rohan Denethor despairs um and uh, uh, and ultimately uh uh you know kills himself uh Whereas Theoden allows himself to be healed of his uh, despair that has taken over him, and he becomes a great hero. And so, when you look at how their their deaths, they both die uh, actually on the same day. Uh, in the uh, at, well, Denethor um, kills himself in the uh, in the uh, tombs, uh, you know, mausoleums of the of the stewards uh, of Gondor. While uh, Theoden dies in battle, uh, uh, you know, saving the day. You look at the two brothers, Boromir and Faramir. Both of them presented with the possibility of the Ring, Boromir seeks to take it in order to wield it, uh, uh, to you know, for good to save his country, but. Uh, it ultimately corrupts his mind. Faramir would not touch the thing if it were left, if he found it lying on the on, on the side of the road. He says. Um, so they're both presented with the the opportunity, but they each are tempted, or each you know go in a different, respond to that temptation in different ways. Of course, Boromir ultimately is redeemed by his sacrificial death in trying to save the characters uh, Pippin and Merry uh, from the orcs. Look at Gandalf and Saruman. Gandalf is offered the ring as well, but he uh, but he refuses it because he would not even touch the thing um, because he knows that in with some of his great power, it would so corrupt him and he would become another dark lord like Sauron. Whereas Saruman, who started out very much like Gandalf, um, is corrupted by his desire for the ring and he ultimately becomes uh you know a a sauron wannabe uh a a kind of a pale shadow of of the dark lord sauron uh in his in his lust for the ring we look at gollum and frodo both of them carry the ring for some time gollum for a long time gollum is completely corrupted by it uh, and, uh, and can think of nothing else but the ring. It is his precious. It is his all consuming passion. Uh, Frodo seeks to destroy the ring, although it does have its, it carry its weight on him. It, it crushes his spirit in the end. Um, and then we look at Galadriel and Feanor, you know, both of them defy the Valar in the Silmarillion and they depart from, uh, from Valinor to, uh, 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 broad lands in uh, in in Middle-earth but Galadriel ultimately um it, you know passes the test and she seeks to fade and be remains simply Galadriel rather than be a dark queen you know and with when she's tempted by the ring fanor does not fail the test and he dies uh in the in the uh Silmarillion uh with a lot of blood on his hands and then finally, in, you know, the small characters, the, uh, the, um, uh, the working class hobbit, Sam Gamgee becomes really the true hero of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Ted Sandyman, you know, in his quest for, you know, power and bullying and whatnot, linking himself up with, uh, in, with the petty tyrants in the Shire, ends up being a servant in a mill where his father had been a, The free owner and proprietor of the mill. Um, So, uh, anyway, we see in these pairs, they're, you know, they have similar backgrounds, similar tests, similar characters, but they go in very different ways because they choose different ways. Um, I think, you know, when we look at uh, the ring itself and its temptation to power, uh, it tempts you according to your stature, the supreme irony, you know, uh, of this ring as it enslaves you. Um, As I mentioned, Sauron is as much a slave of his own ring as is Gollum, who is completely corrupted by it. And there's a supreme irony at the very end of his quest when Frodo is right at the cracks of doom and he speaks loftily of choosing the ring to take it as his own as he stands there on the cracks of doom. He has no will of his own left and it's by the U catastrophe the unexpected turning of uh, where gollum because of his lust for the ring bites the ring off of frodo's finger and uh, and and uh, and then falls into uh the cracks of doom that frodo is actually spared from this he's his his will is completely destroyed by this ring in contrast to that we see that it's humility that conquers Galadriel, able to resist the ring and remain simply Galadriel. And Pippin grows in stature, we see in the Lord of the Rings, the moment he pledges himself to the service of another. Pippin, you know, is this light-hearted um, fool of a toque, as uh, as, uh, uh, as Gandalf calls him. Um, but he suddenly, he, he grows and he becomes a a warrior of Gondor. The moment he pledges... His uh, um, his loyalty, his fealty uh, to Denethor, the Lord of Minas Tirith. Um, turning then, we talked about the felix culpa, this uh, you know, the the fortunate crime, the the uh, the happy fall that that uh, where God turns the evil we do to account, to make it a. a uh, a necessary condition for an even greater good that could not have happened for it. Um, I take that to be re- represented in what Tolkien called, and I used the word earlier here, the U catastrophe. So catastrophe would put EU in front of it. So good catastrophe, the sudden turn of events that he called um, that that brings about the happy and unhoped for ending. It's very different from the deus ex machina, the god from the machine device of, you know, the Greek playwright Euripides, for example, in that the eucatastrophe is not something that comes from the outside and completely changes everything, but it fits within the established framework of the story, and it follows from the actions of the characters. Frodo, this is the best example of this, Frodo, who in the end is himself unable to resist the power of the ring. He succeeds because earlier he had made moral choices. He had made the choice of mercy in sparing Gollum on several occasions. And that means that Gollum is still around to commit his final act of treachery. And it's Gollum's treachery precisely a Felix culpa, Because without that evil action of attacking Frodo and biting the ring off of his hand, um, without which the ring could never have been destroyed. And I can't end this brief uh, talk without a discussion of an abandoned dialogue that, that Tolkien had written called "Athrobeth Finrod on an Andreth, um, which uh, was a dialogue uh, set in the Period of the Silmarillion. So, in the First Age, when a woman named Andrath is talking to an elf named Finrod, and she's talking about the struggle, you know, the fall of of man, which happened offstage in the story, um, and uh, and is there, the discussion is going forward, it ends up with issues, you know, again, i got the fall of man and the temptation of Morgoth, who was the, uh, the, the kind of the Satan figure of the Summerillion. uh, and even with a prophecy of redemption, uh, and Tolkien abandoned it because it started striking him. This is part of why, you know, he had stripped out any overt religious, uh, actions, um, other than, you know, the like we said, the Elbereth hymn and this brief moment of silence. It's almost a table grace of the men of Faramir. Um, because he saw it, it struck him as kind of almost a parody of the truth. But it's instructive that he got to it backwards. He didn't start out by saying, how can I present the fall of man and redemption in a fictional world? He started from the fictional world with the moral presuppositions of the real world and kind of went backwards into it and ultimately found himself reconstructing <laughs> the necessary uh, fall of man and redemption. And so he abandoned that dialogue because he, he didn't want an allegory of the fall dressed up for Middle Earth. So we see in the Lord of the Rings and in the larger legendarium of Tolkien, Tolkien's deeply Catholic imagination and the deep moral uh, depth of uh, you know, our, of our theology uh, embodied in it, not because Tolkien is deliberately trying to teach, you know, dress up Catholicism in, you know, a, 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 you know, suitable, um, exciting form, you know, kind of like the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down kind of thing. But because being a Catholic, that moral sense is so real and so true uh, that if you're going to write stories about important things, moral choices, the underlying um, Catholic imagination is going to be present. And so we come to the end of our brief synopsis of a much larger lecture series on the Catholicism, a deeply Catholic and religious character, of the writings of really one of my absolute favorite writers and i'm happy that you were able to share this with me thank you so much